word doubt does not uh, in and of itself instill a great deal of confidence in one, does it? When one thinks about doubt, that's a fairly disturbing word, not a reassuring word. Certainty, on the other hand, is altogether different. And we are looking at a book in God's Word, 1 John, that has been called, as we have said, the Epistle of Certainties. Not the Epistle of Doubt, not the Epistle of Speculation, but the Epistle of Certainties. That we can indeed know our standing with God. We can know that we know Him. John makes that affirmation in this very epistle, as we have already seen. By this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments, 1 John 2 and verse 3. A little bit later on in a section we have not reached yet, 1 John 5, 3, he says that this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. And So we can know the commandments, we can keep the commandments, and the commandments are not burdensome. The epistle of certainties. But as we've also said, it is called the epistle of love. And John was often called the apostle of love. And yet, as we have also pointed out, his love in no way kept him from being definitive in his teaching and his stand against that which was contrary to God's will. In other words, he did not allow some some definition of love that is anti-biblical to cause him to overlook sin or to keep from condemning sin. John exhibited the perfect balance of biblical love and love for God's law. Love and law are not mutually exclusive, as we have said before. In fact, love and law in Scripture are mutually inclusive. And it is abundantly clear in this epistle we are studying here on Sunday nights right now that indeed if one claims to love God, he must also love the law of God. He must love God's word. Now how was it in the New Testament period that they had the ability to know whether or not someone was teaching that which was true to God's word? They did not have the complete revelation of God. And the early church, because it did not have that complete and perfect revelation, which we now are blessed to have, needed some means by which the church could go forward, grow, and also stand against those who would corrupt the gospel, the pure gospel of Christ. Well, John, in this epistle deals with one of those miraculous gifts that enabled the early church to distinguish between error and truth. And as he writes in the section we are looking at tonight as we conclude chapter 2 of this epistle, John affirms here to those to whom he wrote that the things that I have written to you, he said, these things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. Now we know from our previous study that the immediate context would include here the Antichrists. Not Antichrist singular, but the Antichrist plural. Remember 1 John 2.18, a verse we studied not long ago, Little children, it is the last 
hour, that is, it is the Christian dispensation as we identified that term last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist, and it is capitalized in the New King James, but not in the King James, and the definite article the is not in the original, so Antichrist, or a spirit of anti against Christ is coming, that spirit is coming and is already here, he says, even now many antichrists, plural, have come. And so John is not referring to one specific individual as, as the antichrist, but he's talking about the spirit that is against Christ, and it's manifesting itself, John says, even in his time by many, by many who are opposed to or against Christ. And he refers to them again in the plural in verse 19, as we've already studied, they, plural, went out from us. That is, those who manifested this spirit of Antichrist. Now, he has also, he has also mentioned that they had an anointing. And remember verse 20? But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. This was a miraculous gift. And the all things obviously has to be limited to the ability here that that particular miraculous gift to which he is referring, that particular miraculous gift gave them the ability to discern that which was truth versus that which was error. They were able to test the spirits by the miraculous gift of discernment that was available to the early church. Needed then, but not needed now. And remember, we previewed 1 John 4 and verse 1, I believe, where there he writes, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, spirit there being teachers, but test the spirits, try the spirits, whether they are of God. How do we know he's talking about teachers here? Because in the next stroke of the pen, he writes, Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So test the spirits because many false spirits or prophets, in other words, have gone out into the world. The spirits they were to test were these false teachers. And specifically, John dealt with those who were antichrist in their spirit. That is, they were opposed to Christ. We talked about those who denied that Jesus and Christ could have been uh, in one body. That is, that the fleshly Jesus could have been also the, the divine Christ, because human flesh and divinity could never dwell together. Uh, they were mutually opposed to each other, could never dwell, and so there were groups of these Gnostics who uh, denied that Jesus came in the flesh as the Christ, as the Son of God. And so this is what John, as we have already studied, was dealing with in the particular context here. But obviously... As he does, he lays down by inspiration principles by which we may know how to deal with false teachers in any dispensation of time. And that's the beauty of God's Word. It had the ability, because it was inspired of God, to deal with immediate crises that the brethren faced in their day, and at the same time lay down principles by which we could deal with any error that ever reared its head as long as time exists. No other book could have and did what the Bible did for us and continues to do for us in that respect. So John writes in verse 26, These things I have written to you concerning those who try to 
deceive you. And as we said, the immediate context would obviously have reference to the Antichrist. But let me ask this. Are there those who are Antichrists in our day? Well, of course there are. There are those who deny still today that Jesus ever existed, ever walked the earth. They deny that he was a real person. And then those who would admit, and they should, obviously, because the evidence is overwhelming, the historicity of Jesus can be clearly affirmed that he lived among men, that he was a real person. But also, there are those who, while they will concede that he was a real person who once walked the earth, lived and died, that he was nothing more than a good man or a great teacher, but that he was not the Christ. And so there are many antichrists among us today. And why should that surprise us? Because John says it's the last hour and the antichrists have come and we are in that last hour, not meaning that Jesus is about to come and that we can see the signs. There are no signs. He could come at any time. But we are in the last period of time. We're in the final dispensation. We are in the Christian dispensation. And there are warnings not only here in this epistle we are studying, but there are warnings throughout the New Testament that clearly tell us that in the last times, that is in this Christian dispensation, there would be those who would try to deceive us just as there were those who tried to deceive those Christians to whom John wrote. You remember Acts chapter 20? As the Apostle Paul addressed the Ephesian elders, as he had called them to himself there at Miletus, and that poignant parting took place there as he uh, believed that he would see their face no more. And you remember the charge that he gave them, verse 28, beginning of Acts 20, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And then in verse 29 he said, For I know this, that after my departure, when I'm gone, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. He said also, from among yourselves, from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. To draw away the disciples. And that's exactly what the word deceive here in 1 John 2.26 indicates. Those who would lead you astray is the idea. Those who would lead you astray, those who would draw away disciples to their group, to their false teaching. And then, you remember 1 Timothy 4 and verse 1 beginning. Again, the Apostle Paul writes, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, this is the last hour, latter times, same situation, in the, the Spirit says expressly that in the latter times, in this the final dispensation of time, some will depart from the faith, the system of faith, Christianity, giving heed to deceiving spirits. What does John write here? Those who would try to deceive you. Paul says giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. See if this sounds familiar. As Paul continues, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Of course that's familiar to us, isn't it? 
There are those among us today in the religious world who are forbidding to marry, commanding to abstain from foods, etc. All of these man-made traditions, all of this man-made doctrine and this elaborate system that has reared its head as Paul by inspiration predicted it would and has spawned a multiplicity of denominations, all of this tragically has led astray many and has deceived many. And the majority of the deception has come not from those who openly deny that Jesus is the Christ, but most of the deception has come from those who will clearly tell you they believe Jesus is the Christ, but their practice is according to the teachings and the doctrines of men and not according to the pattern of sound words set forth by the Christ himself and given by the Holy Spirit whom Christ sent to inspire these writers to give us the specific pattern that we are to follow. And many in the Lord's church have been deceived tragically and are in the process of being deceived and being led astray and into that man-made system to some degree or another. You know, we've said that the late guy in Woods had said that there were some 2,500 passages of Scripture that either explicitly or implicitly denied the false but prevalent doctrine today of the impossibility of apostasy. That is, that once you're saved, you're always saved. 2,500. Knowing Brother Woods and his thoroughness, he, I'm sure he counted them. But I would dare say this was among the number. Why? Because John says, these things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you, literally to lead you astray. To whom is John writing? Not to non-Christians. He's writing to Christians. And he's warning them of false teachers who would lead them astray. If there is no possibility of the Christian being led astray, then why did John write these words and issue this warning? Therefore, clearly, here is another passage that tells us that a Christian can be led astray. And tragically, all of us probably here tonight know of one or more who have been. And it is heartbreaking indeed. But in verse 27, John gets us back to these miraculous gifts that were needful at that time. As he writes, but the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things, and is true, and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. John is simply referring to the fact that the Holy Spirit has endowed some among them with the miraculous gift of discerning whether or not a teacher is teaching truth or error. Now, obviously, this was not a gift that every single Christian had because we know there was a diversity of gifts in the early church, miraculous gifts, and some had some gifts, some had other gifts, and all of them, according to 1 Corinthians 12, came together and worked together 
in order to supply the church with everything the church needed. It has all now, as we said, come together in this book so that the church is completely supplied with everything the church needs here. They didn't have this. Therefore, they needed these miraculous gifts. One of them was the ability to discern, as we have already pointed out, the discerning of spirits. That is, the ability to determine whether or not truth was being taught or whether or not error was being taught. You remember that we went back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, just to review. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul says in verse 6, And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For, verse 8, to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge, miraculous knowledge he's talking about here, through the same Spirit, to another faith, he's talking about that miraculous faith that we have discussed uh, earlier, by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healings by the same Spirit. Now we read verse 10, remember? To another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits. There's our gift we're talking about right here. To some was, was given, to some he gave the gift of what? The discerning of spirits. That's the very gift about which John is writing here in 1 John 2, verse 27, and in the verses we have seen him mention this already. And so not all Christians had this gift, but enough of them did so that that was beneficial to all of them. And other gifts that were possessed by others who didn't have the gift of discerning spirits could benefit others. And so they were mutually beneficial based upon the diversity of gifts that were given. And when he says, so that you know all things, he's talking about a limitation, obviously, to these things that were taught. If he is saying here that every Christian had this gift, every Christian had this gift, and that because they knew all things and did not need to be taught anything because they knew all things, then tell me why John is writing to them in the first place. There'd be no need for First John or second or third, and there'd be no need for the word at all. If indeed the Holy Spirit was supplying them directly and supplanting the Word of God by some direct miraculous manifestation of the Spirit. Now, these gifts that were given were temporary, as we have stated before. They were for a specific time and for a specific purpose until that which is perfect or complete had come. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 8 through 13 the Apostle Paul in that context makes it abundantly clear, verse 10, but when that which is perfect, meaning complete or whole, is come, then that which is in part, an obvious reference to miraculous gifts, will be what? Done away. Has that which is perfect come? Yes. Then that which is in part has been done away. Now think about this. If when that which is perfect or complete, and that's the word of God, had come, that which is in part the miraculous gifts would be done away. 
Why would one need to contend for a miraculous gift of any kind today if indeed we are now possessing and do possess that which is complete or whole? And the point is, we don't need anything more. We don't need anything more. And even, even when they needed and had those gifts, miraculous gifts available to them, those gifts did not negate the need for them to hear and be taught the Word of God and to obey the Word of God. And the possession of a miraculous gift did not enable a single person to better comply with the Word of God because he had that miraculous gift. Just because someone could speak in tongues did not mean that he could not apostatize. That person who could speak in tongues or that person who could discern whether or not someone was teaching truth or error still had to obey the word that was being given by inspired men at that time, that word which is now in this inspired book. And yet today, and yet today we have those who would contend that this is a dead letter unless it is enlivened for us by a direct operation of the Spirit. And the charismatic movement has permeated virtually every religious group that one can think about to some degree or another. And yes, the church of our Lord is not exempt from that influence. Tragically, there have been those among us who have contended and do contend for a direct operation of the Spirit separate and apart from the Word of God. And so John was not saying that you don't need the gospel when he wrote to some who had this miraculous gift. He wasn't saying you don't need me. You don't need my teaching. You don't need the teaching of the other apostles or other inspired men as they continue to complete the New Testament. He wasn't saying that at all. He was limiting his communication to a particular situation where there were enough people among these Christians who could discern whether a man was teaching truth or error, who could keep them from imbibing that error, if they would indeed listen. And then the admonition in verse 28 is, and now little children, abide in him. There's that tender term again, little children. That term of affection, that an aged apostle of Christ had for those who were younger in the faith than he, and younger in age, for the most part, most likely, than he was at this time. Little children, abide in him. Isn't that another, isn't that another implicit statement that says you can fall from grace? Otherwise, why would John say, abide in him? If there were no possibility of failing to abide in him, why admonish Christians to abide in him? He's writing to Christians that when he appears, that when he appears, and John did not claim to know when that would be. Why didn't he claim to know when that would be? Because he didn't know. He didn't know. When he appears, what attitude can we have? We can have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If we will abide in him, and how do we do that today? If his word abides in us, Jesus has elsewhere claimed. In John chapter 15, remember, in the gospel according to John, as 
Jesus talked about himself as the vine and the individual disciples as the branches, what did he admonish the branches to do? Bear fruit. Abide in me, verse 4 of John 15, and I in you. Abide in me, and I in you. At verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. Now listen to verse 7 of John 15. If you abide in me, and my what? Spirit, Holy Spirit abides in you. You'll know, you won't read that. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. That's what Jesus said. There's the power of the word. Jesus understood it. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it will be done, shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you may bear much fruit and so will you be my disciples. Abide in him, John says. Jesus says, if you abide in me, and how is that process accomplished? And my words abide in you. The way you abide in him is by allowing his words to abide in you. And it has absolutely nothing to do with some direct operation or miraculous manifestation of the Holy Spirit. But the Spirit operates through that all-sufficient and all-powerful word. So when John admonishes, abide in him, he means exactly what Jesus said when he said, abide in me. He means abide in me by following my word. And if you'll do that, when he appears, you may appear before him, how? With confidence. Some translations render it boldness. The idea there is confidence or, or freeness of, of speech the freeness to declare our position of confidence before him. Think about that. The child of God can live with the kind of certainty if he's following the word of God so that when he realizes that the Lord has come again if he should be alive at that time or when he is raised from the dead in the general resurrection of the dead and appears before the judgment throne of God, he will not have to stand there waiting in line as it were wondering and trembling at the thought of what he or she might hear from the Lord. That is not what the Bible teaches that the attitude of the Christian is to be in this life. The attitude of the Christian who knows that he knows that he knows and he can know that he knows that he knows is an attitude of confidence so that he knows when the Lord comes again as he waits in line, as it were, he doesn't have to stand there thinking, I wonder if I'll hear, well done, good and faithful servant. He can anticipate hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. Does that mean he can live an arrogant life? As a Christian, no. He still knows that it's going to be the mercy of God and the grace of God that ultimately is going to be the ground of his salvation. But because he has spent his or her life feeding upon that word, learning that word, living that word, he knows that that grace is going to be extended because he has met God where God has designated for him to meet him. He met him in obedience to his gospel.
by believing, repenting, confessing, and being baptized and continued to meet him as he walked in the light, as God is in the light, as he confessed his sins to the throne of heaven and kept up that walk even until he drew his last breath and therefore he can stand before God and Christ in judgment with confidence and in anticipation. That's how God wants the Christian to live his or her life. Not in fear and trepidation and wondering, not in doubt, as we stated at the outset, but with the knowledge that he or she is saved. We can know. But there's only one way to know, and that's by the revealed will of God. And that's why we should be so thankful that it has been revealed and that it is knowable, it is obeyable, it's livable. And when we do, we can ultimately stand before him with confidence and not be ashamed before him. We will not shrink back in fear and trembling. We will not grow pale. The color will not leave our cheeks as it were as we turn white as sheets as the expression goes because we're scared to death. Those who will have that attitude are those who will then realize they have not lived in a way to be able to approach that judgment scene in confidence. And John, in the final verse of our study tonight, says, if you know that he is righteous, and here God is the context, is in the context here. If you know that he, that is God the Father, is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. The American Standard says is begotten of him. And in the original, the word for begotten or born is the same word. And the context has to determine whether a begettal, meaning the father's action, is involved or whether the birth as a whole, involving the whole birth process, is involved. But never in Scripture do you have the Father being referred to and someone being born of the Father. You're not born of your Father. You are begotten by your Father and you're born of your mother. And so when the Father is under consideration, really begettal or begotten of Him would be the clearer translation. Who is it that has begotten us again to a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead? It is God the Father. And if we know and we can know and do know that He is righteous, then we should also know that everyone who practices righteousness is practicing righteousness because he's following that standard that God has set for him and therefore he is begotten of God because it is God who has set the standard and as he follows and tries to meet that standard by being righteous, then he is approved of God begotten of him. Who is it that can know that he is in that covenant relationship and anticipate that well done and good and faithful servant? Who is it? It is the one who what? Says he is righteous? No. The one who practices. And the word is yes, keeps on practicing righteousness. It is that individual who can know that he knows him. Is that you tonight? If not, it can be. You can know that you have been begotten of him, born of water and the Spirit, 
before you leave this building tonight. If you will believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, repent of your sins and confess him to be the Christ and then be buried with him in baptism for the remission of sins, you can know as you rise from that watery grave because this book tells you so that his blood has just cleansed you from every sin. Sin that you will never face again as long as you continue to live the Christian life Those sins that are washed away by the blood of Christ are gone forevermore. You may commit them again because you fall, but even if you do, if you keep up your walk in the light, and even if you stumble when you confess those sins, that's the beautiful privilege the child of God has, the continual cleansing power of the blood of Christ as he or she continues to walk in the light, as he is in the light, as we've already seen from 1 John 1, 7 through 9. But if you're here tonight as one who knows you began well, but you are not practicing righteousness. Remember John says the one who knows he's begotten of God is the one who is practicing righteousness. You may have been begotten of God at one time, born of water and the Spirit, but you know tonight that you are no longer practicing righteousness because you're no longer walking in the light as God is in the light. But you can again if you'll be willing to repent. Confess the sins that are publicly known and ask brothers and sisters to pray with you and for you to the God of heaven, the Father above, who loves you supremely and will forgive you completely and forget forevermore every sin washed again clean by the blood of the Lamb. As we stand to sing, will you come?